Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from January of 2017 on politics and psychology from Mussolini to the alt-right. To find out about future science cafes, please visit umnh.org. Good evening, everyone. I'm standing here in the middle of the room. Thank you all so much for being here tonight. What a great, great turnout. I'm delighted that you all have seats. It's a little touch and go for a while there. Um, My name is Amy Harris, and I'm the director of the Museum of Natural History at the University of Michigan, which is uh, sponsoring tonight's program. Uh, And I need the exact title, Kira. Can you tell me? The title this evening is Psychology and History from Mussolini to the Alt-Right. Thank you very much. Before we get started, I want to thank Connor O'Neills for making this room available for us. Please join me in thanking them. And throughout the evening, you can order additional food and drink from the servers who will be circulating. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Kira Berman, the museum's assistant director for education and the uh, mastermind behind the Science Cafe series since 2007. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank all of you for coming. You make this event what it is. I'm really excited about uh, today's speakers, so I'll be brief. Um, But I do want to say that um, we have several previous event sponsors uh, in the room this evening, and I want to take a minute to let you know a couple of things. One, you can sponsor a science cafe. Um, We have individuals here who have chosen to do that. Or if you're part of an organization, your organization can sponsor a science cafe. And we'd love it if you did that. Um, We have a a little donation box. Maybe somebody can hold it up. In fact, Katrina's holding it there. I have high hopes for our donation box this evening. Um, But when our science cafes are sponsors, Sponsored, we don't have a donation box because that donation is all paid for. So our previous uh, Science Cafe sponsors, who I know are here today, are David and Andrea Scott. Thank you very much. Um, And uh, we have Science for the People uh, represented. We have two representatives here, John Vandermeer and Yvette Perfecto. So thank you. Where is Teresa? And Teresa Ong. Yay. You guys are awesome. Um, and is there anybody here from Sigma Xi, the, the Scientific Research Society? They're another one of our uh, event sponsors, and they will be sponsoring um, the Science Cafe in March, uh, which will be on epigenetics, or how um, your experience and the environment can actually affect your DNA. So that'll be a very exciting Uh, Science Cafe. I hope you'll come to that as well. Anyways, and of course, always, Connor sponsors this by waiving their rental fee. So I really am appreciative uh, of Connor's. Thank you. Okay, those of you who have been here before know our format. If you don't know our format, I will summarize it right now. Um, We're going to have some very brief presentations and uh, introducing our topic today. Um, And when we are done with that, um, there will be conversation at your tables. And after 
The third part, after the conversation at your tables, the third part will be a large format group conversation. So those are the three parts of our Science Cafe this evening, if you're not familiar. Um, please turn off your cell phones because we will uh, be recording this and we hope not to record your ringtone. Um, okay, so I'm going to introduce today's speakers. Again, um, the idea for, for this was just um, that I thought that, that nationalist politics were pertinent to our public events. Uh, so I, I thought I'd invite some speakers with some expertise on that. Um, Dario Gaggio <laughs> is professor in the Department of History at U of M. He was born and raised in Florence, Italy, and holds a PhD from Northwestern University. He's the author of two books, In Gold We Trust, so Social Capital and Economic Change in the Italian Jewelry Towns um, in 2007, and The Shaping of Tuscany, Landscape and Society Between Tradition and Modernity uh, in 2016. Very new. Congratulations. Um, his research aims to facilitate interdisciplinary dialogue between history and the social science, sciences, especially sociology, geography, and anthropology. He teaches courses on modern Italy and modern Europe, as well as on the history of political economy. Please welcome Dario Gaggio. Josh Rabinowitz is a lecturer in the Department of Psychology at the University of Michigan, and he obtained his PhD in social psychology from UCLA, and he's authored or co-authored a number of articles in social and political psychology. His scholarship concerns intergroup conflict, prejudice, political ideology, and political behavior. He teaches a variety of courses in statistics, research methods, and political psychology. He also takes great pride in coaching an elementary school astronomy team. Please welcome Josh Rabinowitz. And thanks for plugging all the contributions we do for the Science Olympiad at our planetarium. I appreciate that. Um, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Dario. Uh, so thank you for being here, and thank you, Kira, for inviting me and inviting us. And uh, I do have a script. I mean, I'm going to read it with emphasis. It's going to be 15 minutes tops. Uh, but, you know, you don't want an historian to start talking about one of his main field of research because I could be here all day long, and, you know, you don't want that. So in the spirit of time, economy, whatever you want to call it, I'm going to read this, but, you know, I hope, hopefully you, you won't get too bored, okay? So... Here it starts. So, all our borders are equally sacred. They must be monitored and defended against any potential threat. For us fascists, all borders are sacred. We do not discuss them, we protect them. A nation without border is not a nation. The first two quotations are from Benito Mussolini in the 1930s. The third one is for our, from our current president less than 12 hours ago, okay? So you wanted some provocation, here it is, I set the tone. <laughs> then I'm going to qualify all of that immensely, don't worry about it. So, fascism is on a lot of people's minds, lips, and protest signs these days. And in light of these quotations, one can see why, right, in certain ways. So in the heat of political passion, um, history resonates, right? It provides precedents, warnings, possible futures. And in the face of such passions, 
uh, the, you know, the historian or social scientist can take at least two routes, right? She can reprimand the public for uh, uh, being fast and loose with these concepts that should be setting their context and so on and so forth. Or she can also try to understand, right, why these uh, concepts resonate in the present and why at certain points uh, people reach into this reservoir, right, of tropes, of images. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm going to take this second route, uh, not to uh, uh, demonstrate that we are living uh, under the threat of fascism or to deny that possibility altogether, but to explore some of the conditions of possibility, right, for the emergence of certain fears or perhaps aspirations for some. And in short, the question for us today is, or for me today, is what is the current relevance and resonance of fascism made of, right? What are its components and articulations? So to, be, to begin with, fascism emerged in Italy in the wake of World War I, not as a doctrine, but as a concrete movement that promised to bring the emotions and accomplishments of war to bear on political life. Fascism was to hearken back to the spirit of the trenches in order to regenerate Italy. It was a movement that constantly and simultaneously looked backwards and forwards, to the past and to the future. And it did that precisely because it was above all about action, azione, they called it, right? Liberalism, socialism had their own theories to be deployed to interpret reality. Fascism, by contrast, thought of itself as acting on reality almost instinctively, the way the soldier acts on the movements of his enemy. The fascist didn't think, right? He believed, obeyed, fought, as this, uh, the regime's uh, most famous uh, slogan had it, credere, obedire, combattere. So fascism was nimble or opportunistic, or maybe both, you know, you'll be the judge. So the reference to war uh, was, of course, not coincidental. Fascism defi defined itself in opposition to its domestic and international enemies. But it also saw military life and discipline as a blueprint from, for society at large. Italy was not simply supposed to have an army. It was supposed to become an army. <clears throat> and look at image number one, right, on your uh, table uh, for reference. Militarism was part of fascism's genetic code, so to speak, right? And not only or even primarily because, the regimes, because of the regime's imperial ambitions, because it wanted to conquer new lands, of course, that was part of it. Italy was to become an army because the army was an institution that forged Italians and uh, considered each member of the national community as an Italian first and foremost. So military life promised unity of purpose and offered a method to obtain that unity. Hierarchy, so gerarchia in Italian, was a recurring keyword uh, in fascist propaganda, but it was the kind of hierarchy that motivated people to act as one, right? Cast aside their differences, as the Italian army had done in some of the glorious battles of World War I, and there were some, right? Italy, for, World War I for Italy was not quite as embarrassing as World War II, that should be noted. So, but we don't know, people didn't know that. So, but why was this fantasy of unity so important? Because the modern condition, what we may call modernity, was, perhaps still is, above all about conflicts, divisions, rifts, right, between social classes, uh, generations, genders, regional interests, political ideology, and so on and so forth. Now, fascism 
never tired of claiming that democracy preyed on, its, on these divisions, right? Political parties and politicians of the old school relied on those rifts, on those divisions, to acquire power and money, right? And, to, uh, and they pitted one Italian against uh, another and undermined the national body in the process. And Italy, it's important to notice that Italy, uh, before the rise of fascism, was a liberal democracy, however imperfect. And the only two countries that went full-blown fascist, meaning Italy in 1922-25 and Germany in 1933, without foreign intervention, had been democracies before, right? They had, they had uh, experienced the challenges and promises of democracy. So, and, and, and fascism was both a rejection of democracy and in an in, in in equally interesting way, its consummation, right? Democracy, much like war, had opened the minds of Italians and Germans to the calls of mass mobilization, right? It kind of, in a sense, prepared them for it, right? Uh, in complicated ways. So you may want to notice that fascism couched its appeal to the unity of the people through a dialectic of inclusion and exclusion, right? Who was part of the people and who was not? Fascism, and this is crucial, was also a form of populism, another word that is on everybody's lips uh, these days. Mussolini most certainly called himself a fascist and pretty much coined the term. He didn't call himself a populist. Populism in the 1920s already had negative uh, connotations, probably more negative back then than it does today. There had been a populist party in the United States, of course, at the end of the 19th century, uh, William Jennings Bryant being the, the most famous leader, and that party pitted the interests right, of the rural heartland against uh, the rural elites of the East Coast cities. Um, but the original populists were uh, some Russian radicals for, from the mid-19th century, and uh, these also right, celebrated the world of the Russian peasantry that had just been liberated from feudal uh, serfdom. So from its beginnings, right, populism highlighted the gap between the authenticity and instinctive unity of the rural folks, on the one hand, and the self-interested divisiveness and divisive machinations of the urban elites, on the other. And indeed, transposed to more industrial contexts, Populism, especially its right-wing variety, remains predicated on the imagining right, of a people that is forever under threat, always on the verge of being destroyed by the juggernaut of history, right, with a capital H. Time never works in the populist's favor. The populist is always in a hurry, right? He, sometimes she, lately, quite often she, must rebel against history's degenerative trends, right? Capitalism, feminism, socialism, secularism, cultural and racial miscegenation, and so on and so forth. In this sense, Mussolini was very much a populist, and his regime was a populist one. I would venture that all fascist, all forms of fascism are populist, although not all forms of populism are fascist, something that we can discuss later on, if you will. So the propaganda posters on your tables illustrate some of the main themes of fascist populism. So number two, for example, contrasts the destiny of the Italian race, right, razza, under fascism, with the decline in the birth rate and the changes in, in gender roles associated with modernity. In, in a sense, that poster says that we will take control of our demographic future. We will support traditional motherhood and child rearing, right? That's the, kind of the message. So number three, four, and five speak to the economic nationalism of the era. 
Uh, free trade was on the decline everywhere, uh, even before the onset of the Great Depression in 1929. Mussolini forced the Italian lira back on the gold standard in 1927 with devastating consequences for many sections of Italian society. But the ultimate goal was that of gaining control over the chaos of economic life, beating the economy into submission, so to speak, right? So that it could work towards the goal of national regeneration, even though that meant, in practice, by and large, preparation for war and the creation of an ever more powerful military-industrial complex, to use an anachronistic uh, 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 you know, concept or, or expression. So images six and seven speak to Italy's colonial past in North and East Africa. They were both produced during World War II when things turned sour for Italy and the Allies, mostly the British, quickly uh, drove the Italians out of East Africa, meaning Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia. Uh, they all say we will be back right, in one form or another. But the images are those of rural folks, right? Working the land across generations. Millions of Italians in practice uh, uh, had been migrating uh, in search of modern industrial jobs, not the kinds of jobs that are depicted there. Uh, but Italian colonial settlers were imagined to be coming from the rural heartland, right? The, the real backbone of the nation. So that was the propaganda and the self-presentation of the regime. Ideology and self-representation did matter, right? There is no doubt that propaganda worked, and it worked in part because it told some, many Italians what they wanted to hear, right? Especially the lower middle classes. And uh, here's another arresting uh, quotation from Mussolini. Mankind needs faith. It is faith that moves mountains. Because faith gives people the illusion that mountains are indeed moving. Illusion might be life's only reality, unquote. So the notion of alternative facts does have a long history. <laughs> Sorry, what? Okay. And Mussolini may have been one of, the, of history's greatest uh, illusionists. So did Italy produce, let alone become, a powerful, ar a cohesive army? Do you know that? What's the answer to that? Not really. Did the birth rate increase in the 20 plus years of uh, fascist regime? No. Did Italy manage to insulate itself from the vagaries of international capitalism? No, no, no. Uh, did they recolonize Africa? Nope, either, right? So there is no question that fascism lost its battle with history, uh, with the capital H. Last page, we're almost there. But that's the rub, right? That's the rub. Like many forms of populism, fascism was forever caught in this quandary between promising radical changes that would go against the grain of history, and acknowledging, sometimes even promoting, the very forces that it railed against. The fascists, like all right-wing populists, needed to make sure that the national community, quote-unquote, felt under threat at all times, so that they would appear as its saviors. The enemy, domestic or otherwise, had to be summoned, sometimes even invented, the Jew being the ultimate example of that, but more importantly, right, the, or equally importantly, the fascists, perhaps more than any other form of populism, didn't simply make promises. All politicians, of course, love to do that. Uh, the fascists really uh, engaged in progressively more unlikely bluffs. They played poker with history, so to speak, right, without ever having a plausible hand. And of course, the fascists' ultimate bluff was war, and usually a war of annihilation. It was no coincidence that as soon as Hitler realized that the war with the Allies was uh, lost, 
he concentrated on winning the war against the Jews of Europe. And that one, he very nearly won, as you know. So that radicalizing drive towards destruction and self-destruction was perhaps unique to the form of populism that we call fascism. But other less deadly forms of populism have perils of their own, right? Now, I'm going to be a little provocative, but you've already heard me. So (laughs) boo me, I don't care. So once it becomes clear that the contradictions of global capitalism cannot be kept at bay so easily, that immigration cannot be stopped with a wall, that denying racism while using its playbook is a dangerous game, then what, right? What is the more moderate, quote-unquote, populist leader to do then when his bluff is called? At that point, the temptation, and this is what history shows, at that point, the temptation to rally the people, quote-unquote, against some enemy uh, can become irresistible. And the thing, you know, and this is kind of important, the people may well be imaginary, but the enemy always bleeds for real. That's kind of the problem. So to end by paraphrasing a famous biblical passage, and this may or may not be appropriate, the final question must be, will we have enough water, right, the fire next time? So thank you. Thank you, Dario. And thank you all for coming. Uh, I don't know whether to be excited or concerned that we have so many people crammed in here to talk about fascism in what's basically a beer hall. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, good. Not too soon. All right. Um, So uh, what I wanted to talk to you about is um, some pretty old literature uh, in psychology, for the most part. Um, Actually, you can go to the first, actually, my only main slide, just... Just to show you some of the topics uh, historically, um, these works, going all the way back um, to the work of Graham Wallace, um, an English scholar on the far left, uh, was interested in how the unconscious impacted uh, political behavior. And he was not a Freudian. I mean, this was published in 1908. This was about the time that Freud was getting famous. Um, But people like Laswell, that's the second one you see there, or the work of Reich, um, the mass psychology of fascism, uh, they were very much influenced by Freud. And so what we have um, in this particular literature is kind of the, in a way, a a history of academic and scientific psychology writ small. We can trace uh, the, the literature and the hypotheses and the data from... Freudian work to more behaviorist work, uh, right up into uh, the implicit sorts of biases that people are studying today. So everything that has evolved in academic psychology has been traced uh, in this particular uh, field. One way we can sort of break this down is the old, as you guys, everybody knows, right, nature versus nurture, or more accurately, we can talk about disposition versus situation or person versus situation. What's inside the mind? What are some of the external factors? Because as it turns out, just as psychologists are interested in both, authoritarianism, the support for these sorts of regimes that we just heard about, can be expressed both ways. It's kind of like the particle wave uh, parallel that we see with light. You can think of it as both the person and as the situation. I want to start with the person. It's more interesting. Uh, it's a little, it gives us a little bit more concrete stuff to talk about. And when we talk about people, um, 
basically we have to do some sort of measuring, right? And this is what all scientists do, including psychologists. So how do we measure these sorts of things? Well, then we get to the um, other two works. Um, Eric Fromm's Escape from Freedom, published in 1941. Um, Basically a philosophical, clinical treatise um, using the notion of Freud's defense mechanisms to discuss why people would support a Mussolini or a Hitler. And he basically boiled it down to three not mutually exclusive but uh, pretty distinguishable defense mechanisms. One, destructiveness. If I'm afraid um, my job is insecure or there's hyperinflation going on or I'm, we're going to be invaded, one thing I can try to do to sort of exact some sort of agency on the world is to destroy. This makes me feel like an actor. This makes me an actor. That was one. Second, authoritarianism. If I'm feeling weak, if I'm feeling at the whim of external forces, one thing I can do is attach myself to a stronger figure. Uh, Here he uses the notions of masochism and sadism. You could think of that in a sexual context. He actually talks about that in the book, but we're talking much broader than that. This is a Uh, the sort of reciprocal relationship between power and the weak. I attach myself to the power and reject those who are weak. So this is what we mean by authoritarianism as a psychological construct. Uh, For Fromm, he argued that the U.S., that the American population didn't really fit into either of those two to any great degree. And so he posited a third one, which was automaton conformity. What do Americans do better than anybody? Movies, TV, radio. This is what we were known for throughout the world, certainly in the 1930s and 40s. We create a greater identity that we can all subsume ourselves under, and we don't particularly like strong men that we might see in authoritarian regimes. So this is where where Froome was coming from. Now, The Authoritarian Personality, published in 1950, Um, by, you probably know, Theodore Adorno is a pretty famous philosopher, but also the work of Frankel Brunswick, uh, Levinson, and Sanford. I'll just call it Adorno et al., as we always do. Um, This, again, published in 1950. Now, where uh, Fromm and these earlier works tended to be very descriptive, uh, very clinical, philosophical, here we have a massive tome of data. So, just as psychology is becoming more and more quantitative, more and more um, employing scientific methods, um, this is where we get the authoritarian personality. Now, they're still borrowing from Freud. They're still using notions of ego defensiveness, um, still using notions of defense mechanisms. Um, But now we're getting what we all do these days, surveys. So what you have, I think, in the handouts are some of the example questions from Adorno et al. in their assessment of the authoritarian personality. Now, they had all kinds of scales. They had an ethnocentrism scale. They had an anti-Semitism scale. Actually, the project began uh, with a grant from the Anti-Defamation League to study anti-Semitism in the U.S., and they made the observation that, hey, people who are anti-Semites tend to not like black people. They tend not to like people who aren't like them. And this is where they started building the theory. This is the F scale. 
the examples that you see here. I'll give you one guess as to what F stands for. And um, it's kind of a discredited measure. Nobody uses it anymore. But if anything, when you look at the topics, look at some of the questions, I don't know, does it feel like it resonates in some way? Yes. <laughs> you said it, not me. Um, so what we have are these different dimensions um, that these questions are designed to assess. All right. Um, we don't need to go through all of these, um, but certainly the first three, here, you can take that one. That's okay. I got I'll just grab one of these. The first three are seen as central to the construct. First, conventionalism, this rigid adherence to conventional middle class values. This also brings into mind what Frome had talked about in terms of automaton conformity, right? Everybody's sort of blending together. Um, the example item that I give you here is a very interesting question. Because as I said, this is a very flawed measure. Nobody uses this anymore. But the very first question, this is what the numbers represent, the question order in this version. This very first question we still use today. The American National Election Studies, which are housed, co-housed at ISR over on Thompson Street, also at uh, Stanford University, they still ask this question. And here we are over 60 years later. Obedience and respect for authority are the most important virtues children should learn. Okay. This notion, and this captures a lot of it, although here I use it as an example of conventionalism, um, can still parse uh, lots of variability in political uh, differences. Second, authoritarian submission. So this, um, of course, would be the masochistic part of it. Um, submissive, uncritical uh, attitude toward idealized moral authorities of the in-group. What this country needs most, more than laws and political programs, is a few courageous, tireless, devoted leaders in whom the people can put their faith. So this evokes not only action, but also duce, right? Um, this really brings to mind uh, support for a strongman type of leader. This is combined, somewhat paradoxically perhaps, but not really, uh, with the more sadistic aspect, the tendency to be on the lookout for and condemn, reject, and punish people who violate conventional values, authoritarian aggression. So again, we have this sort of synergy between these two sides of the same coin. Um, maybe I'll, I will mention a couple others. Anti-interception. Um, this is opposition to the subjective, the imaginative, the tender-minded. Uh, my, this is a great item. When a person has a problem or worry, it is best for him not to think about it, but to keep busy with more cheerful thoughts. Right? Um, if any of you are um, uh, fans of uh, the musical The Book of Mormon, for those, those of us who love this, this literature and that musical, there's a song called Turn It Off, which basically is this very idea. Uh, and then power and toughness, right? This preoccupation with dominance, submission, strong, weak, leader, follower. Somebody who emphasizes those sorts of things. Where did this come from? Well, this is where it gets very interesting. Um, the authoritarian personality is very much pointing to the person. They see this as a pathology. These are mostly clinical psychologists. Uh, they see this as a, basically a personality disorder. And it comes from parenting. Parenting styles, the rigid, um, punitive parenting in those sorts of families. Now, we could also talk about, um, as I said, situation. I'm going to try to speed things up a little bit. Um, 
we could also say maybe it's not anything particular about any individual, that maybe there are sort of social, economic constraints, uh, changes in society that cause people to become authoritarian. That's basically what Fromm said. Fromm located it in the mind of individuals, but he was talking at a much broader level. So in that earlier work, where he talked about these defense mechanisms, where, why did people need those? Well, he traces it from the growth of Pro the Protestant Re Reformation, which created capitalism, which created um, economic uncertainty for individuals where uh, feudalism had certainty, and therefore the adoption of these sorts of defense mechanisms. So he's actually playing both person and situation, whereas the authoritarian personality has got a little bit closer to home with the family at the broadest level. So where do we go from there? Well, more recent work, as you look at the back here, um, you'll see examples of right-wing authoritarianism. This is Altemeyer's, Bob Altemeyer's measure. It addresses many of the methodological flaws of the F scale um, with newer items. Now, this is still a very popular measure, whereas the F scale is not used anymore. I won't read any of those. Um, some of my own work, um, also the work of Professor Arnold Ho um, here at the University of Michigan, uh, but especially Sedanius and Prado were the ones, sort of the... Uh, parents of social dominance orientation. This is a different construct altogether. Uh, this measures the degree to which people um, espouse, like, or are attracted to um, the dominance of certain groups over other groups. And you're thinking, well, that sounds a lot like authoritarian aggression and authoritarian submission. It does. But interestingly, SDO and authoritarianism are very weakly correlated. There is a relationship between the two variables, but very weak. Um, and so if any of you are interested in that particular um, finding and what it means, I could certainly refer you to uh, interesting readings about that. So this is how we measure the person. Now, I want to go back uh, very quickly to situation. Um, maybe we can go to that, that next slide. Might be difficult for you to see, but I will just point this out. Um, here we have an experiment. So what was done here was um, the description of a particular type of leader was described to people. They just read a paragraph about what kind, three different kinds of leader. Uh, one is a charismatic leader. One is a task-oriented leader. And then the third one is going to be a relationship-oriented leader. Right. The charismatic leader is one who says, I, we can fix this. If you, if you just follow me, we do this together um, with my guidance, we can do this sort of thing. The task-oriented leader is, we can achieve this together, but doesn't sort of play into any sort of personal charisma. And then the relationship-oriented is about, we can do this together, and then doesn't really talk about tasks or personal charisma. What they also did in this study, uh, this is one of the famous mortality salience studies. Is anybody familiar with those? Yeah, they basically manipulated um, you thinking about your own death. I mean, literally, they have you write a paragraph where you describe what it's going to be like when you die. All right? Now, they contrast that with another condition in which you're asked, I think in this case, um, uh, what did they do in this one? Uh, it could have been like dental pain where you have to think of, imagine like you're getting you know, a root canal or something. Uh, sometimes they'll ask you to think about going, uh, taking a tough exam. I think that was probably this one. Uh, you're going to take a tough exam. What's that going to feel like? So something that's also negative, but not death per se, not as threatening as that. And uh, just to make a long story short, what you see here is that when people 
are asked to think about their own death, you see that the popularity of a charismatic leader jumps. That's on the far left there. So that dark bar on the far left shows just how much more popular uh, that charismatic leader is when people are thinking about their own death as opposed to some other negative situation. For the task-oriented leader, who was always the most popular, this wasn't impacted by mortality salience. And the relationship-oriented leader was seen as much less desirable when people are thinking about death. All right. Am I gone over a little too long? Yeah, probably too far, but um, in my limited time, I hopefully showed you how we can think about authoritarianism both as uh, some enduring trait-like characteristic of people that's in their mind, but also how we can push it around in the lab or as the economy gets better or worse, we can see these um, at a more macro level as well. All right. Thank you. Okay. So this is a great time to begin discussing those questions that are on the table. There are five of them. Um, to uh, I'll have the wait staff come back in here, and you can you can re up your drinks if you're if you're so inclined. And uh, we'll have we'll have our speakers circulate, and then we'll come back together in about twenty to thirty minutes uh, for a group discussion. Thank you. Okay, everybody, I'd like to bring us back together, please. This is the part where I have to inter interrupt your really great conversation. This is the part where I try to interrupt your really great conversation. Okay, here we go. So the last uh, part of our Science Cafe, of our format, is to have a moderated group discussion and our two guests have asked me to moderate, which means that I will let speakers know when they have the floor and when they don't. Yeah, I'll, I'll try. So I'm going to pass this cordless mic. Please use it to enable those uh, with hearing impairments to hear, and because we have a lot of people here this evening, and so that we can record our conversation for a later podcast. Please look at me to be recognized if you would like to speak, even though I'm not one of our experts. I want to be clear about that. My knowledge is not expert knowledge in, in this field. Please limit your questions or comments to about 30 seconds to a minute so that lots of people can participate. I may interrupt you if you go on forever. Likewise, I'm going to give preference to those who have not spoken yet just to diversify the voices that we hear tonight, okay? I always hope this part will feel more like a group discussion than just a question and answer session. So we have a lot of different kinds of expertise in the room. I know a lot of, a lot of you. Um, with this in mind, please feel free to address comments as well as questions to the group as a whole. We'd like to foster open discussion and honest debate even as we address topics that may be tense or uncomfortable. It's likewise important to protect each other's sense of safety. Please speak from your own experience. Please be nice to each other or else. That's the strongman part. <laughs> yeah. I'll start here. Is it uh, really worth creating a dialogue with a, an authoritarian personality? Uh, I would like to think so. Um... <laughs> I'm definitely not a biological essentialist, so I would like to think that people are somewhat malleable. Um, I don't know how much success you'll have, but certainly 
you know, we, we, we will retrench in our attitudes, and we all are, are guilty of that. Um, I think this might be more of a political than a psychological question, just knowing that there's dissent uh, is important for other sides to hear, that there's not this sort of self-serving bias, as we might call it. So keep going. <laughs> uh, tonight you've uh, exclusively focused on right-wing authoritarianism, but uh, isn't there as much authoritarianism on the left as well as the right really... What's the big difference between Stalinism and communism and fascism or Nazism? They basically do the same sorts of things, really. They're both evil. Yeah, so this was one of the uh, early theoretical criticisms of those authoritarianism theories. And um, we can go back to the work of Schills. Uh, there are lots of names that have, have looked at this. Um, actually... Can we go to the, one of the later slides? It's uh, that last one. There you go. Uh, so Milton Rokich actually uh, was one of the people who, who looked at this, and he wanted to differentiate sort of the ideological content, the left-right dimension, which you see on the x-axis here, uh, from you know extreme left to extreme right sorts of ideologies, um, from a completely independent dimension, which really captured more of the cognitive style, this sort of rigidity, this sort of... Um, anti-interception, this sort of black and white um, clarity about the world, or is what he called it, uh, dogmatism. So you can think about uh, ideologies, people, um, parties that are highly dogmatic versus um, not particularly dogmatic, more democratic and, and accepting um, you know, di- diversity of opinion. So we created a dogmatism scale. Um, it's been administered for over 50 years. It's not too popular now. And uh, basically what it comes down to, as Bob Altemeyer has put it, uh, finding authoritarianism of the left is like finding hen's teeth. That is to say that, yes, you're right. You can, if you go extreme left um, and talk about Stalinists, you're going to find some pretty rigid thinkers. Um, but for the most part... Um, these two dimensions are not distinguished at 90-degree angles like this, that they are, in fact, correlated with each other. Um, most of the evidence suggests that as you get more extreme, you're definitely going to get more dogmatic uh, beliefs, but it's going to be much more common in the right-wing philosophies. This is an empirical uh, observation. You can have a theoretical problem with it, but that just means you need to come up with a different measure of rigidity of thought administer it to as many people as you can across the political spectrum and see what you find. But everything that we have so far suggests there's some truth to that, but it's definitely stronger on one side than the other. Yeah, and so it could be that many of our studies, we don't have enough Stalinists or Maoists taking our our surveys. Um, (laughs) But where we've looked, um, the notion of authoritarianism of the left is pretty weak, actually. I mean, it, this is one of the hardest questions to answer for any modern, uh, you know, historian of any kind. But in some ways, right, the, the, the notion of totalitarianism that you may be, um, you know, kind of channeling now in some ways, the word totalitarianism was actually born in Italy, right? Totalitario was something that the opponents of Mussolini said, I mean, this liberal opponent of Mussolini said to him, oh my God, you want to establish a stato totalitario. 
uh, as, a, as an accusation. And he, said, and he said, oh, wow, I like the sound of that. And he actually incorporated it into his, um, his philosophy. And actually, totalitarian then became right, this way of linking left and right authoritarianism in the climate of the Cold War, right? Uh, and uh, I mean, lots of regimes kill, right? And uh, that's definitely, and lots of regimes have done horrifying things. Um, I mean, you know, colonialism was not no joke either, right? So there have been liberal uh, uh, regimes that also have engaged in uh, uh, horrifying violence, uh, maybe not at home, but in, in their own colonies. So it's not so much the amount of violence, right, that can put together, uh, that can link up different ideologies or, or the amount of destruction that they create and so on and so forth. There were substantial differences, but they're really boring to describe between, you know, the Soviet regime and uh, uh, the fact that they wielded a lot of violence. I mean, it, there were modern regimes. They took hold of the power of the state and they could... Uh, uh, unleash it, right, uh, in, in, a, in very effective ways. But it's not much of a commonality, right? All modern, uh, all modern societies have the potential to do that, I think, including our own in so many ways. I don't want to talk about this as an abstraction. I'm here because I'm terrified right now. I'm here because I'm terrified of the direction that this country seems to be taking. I'm here because I'm terrified that I, and I don't know a, a ton about what happened between the two wars in Europe, but the little bit that I know about the rise of fascism, about the rise of authoritarian regimes, I, I'm seeing so many parallels that it's, it scares my socks off. My question is, how do we pull ourselves back from the precipice, from the, the, the cliff that we're looking over right now? How do we create effective action to do something to both identify the tendencies, because I'm not, the major news media are not identifying certain tendencies. How can we, the huge mass of people who, who are not benefiting from this, this course, this direction that we're taking, how can we, the huge mass of people, pull ourselves back, begin to identify those tendencies and trace their sources, Koch brothers, trace their sources, American Legislative Exchange Committee, trace their sources, Stephen Bannon, trace their sources, so that more of us are not blindly following these things that are going on. And second thing, um, within our group, somebody asked the question about, can you have a conversation with an authoritarian personality? You don't have to talk with them in words. I mean, we've already identified the sort of anti-intellectual aspect. You can tell stories. <laughs> That's what I do for a living. You can tell stories. You can create alternative cultural things for them to hook into that, that don't go directly to the mind but go to the gut, right? Change the culture is a suggestion. But I want to hear comments about what, what do we do? Okay, number one. I'm kidding. I mean, what do I know, right? <laughs> but <laughs> I have a list. I mean. But um, wh one thing that I'll say, so we were actually talking about this uh, earlier. So when uh, the two of... Uh, the two uh, leaders that in interwar Europe gained uh, power uh, spontaneously, quote unquote, without so fascism was exported on, uh, you know, by war, right, throughout Europe, but only in two cases truly it emerged, uh, quote unquote, spontaneously from within. So in Italy and Germany, 
And uh, what you see there is that these were societies that were uh, in many ways exhausted, right? They were so utterly uh, uh, dejected, I mean, you know, uh, by, by the consequences of war in Italy and by the consequences of the, of the Great Depression uh, uh, in, uh, in, in the case of Germany. And uh, they really were looking for deliverance, right? Some, someone to actually get them out of that funk they were in. And, uh, and uh, th these societies were open to a lot of different things, right? I mean, so it could have gone left, it could have gone this. It got, so it wasn't like one thing. What actually did it, I'm not going to make you feel better right now, is that a conservative elite, right, in both countries, chose Hitler and Mussolini as their safest bet to avoid any possible alternative of a left-wing uh, solution, right? So, and the, the conservative elite, and now it, you can see the parallels right now, of course, but that conservative elite was rotten, I mean, in a, in a true way. I mean, they really wanted to undermine the very basis of their own societies. They didn't believe in democracy. They didn't believe in... Uh, in openness of anything, right? And uh, now we can discuss whether the conservative elite that is right now um, deploying, you know, our current president. I mean, I don't. I think we should not demonize everybody quite the same way. So I don't. I still think, and I want to believe that they are not uh, bent on destroying the system as a whole, right? So that's one way to. I see that basic distinction. So I think there's a problem in our society with hyperbole. I think that uh, we were talking about at our table over here that for writers and thinkers to express their ideas, that they have to uh, exaggerate them to even be heard in, in, in the noise that we have uh, around us today. And so I think uh, the problems that we have with our, with our press, I think a press is playing into it because the writers have got to have a job. They, they have to make a living. They have to get noticed. So they fall prey to this. And I don't know what the answer is. I mean, maybe we shouldn't be so sucked into the hyperbole, just as he was talking about the, the youth go after what they go after and the dollar chases the youth dollar. Maybe we should be more controlled with what we choose to read, to not just grab the, the first thing that's the most exciting or the most provocative. I don't know. So. Well, yeah, it has been worse here in the United States before. Prior to World War II, there was a beginning of a Nazi party in the United States. Why didn't that take hold? I mean, you know, th th there were uh, hint hints of fascism in, in, in this country in the 1930s. Father, Mac uh, Father McLaughlin was one, you know, the main one, right? The, the, the Catholic priest that broadcast out of, uh, out of Detroit, right, out of Royal Oak, was one of the main. Uh, so if you actually go back and listen to his uh, uh, radio broadcasts, they were very close, right, to, to what was going on in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Europe uh, at the time. I, it's, it's a hard thing to say why, why things don't happen. I mean, I think uh, the, the, you know, quite simply, I, I don't think that the, 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 uh, the, the social conditions in, in, in this country were, I mean, you know, like the, the fact that it, that, this country had had a civil war. This country was racially divided. It was still right. Jim Crow was, Jim Crow was had an element of, of all of the above. Right. We have to remember that racially speaking, so that, that racial purity was a major uh, preoccupation of fascism. So 
The idea that fa the United States was never fascist, true and yet, right? I mean, socially speaking, there are undercurrents in this society that have always been above all about racial anxieties that were resonating very closely. But th these, um, so these anxieties about racial purity never linked up to the federal government, right, in the way that uh, they did in, in parts of Europe. So, um, so there is a different relationship with the state, you know, that I think is, is very different, but it's a huge question. I, I don't know if I can give like one simple answer. I mean, one of the defenses of this notion of left-wing authoritarianism is that if you look at these right-wing movements throughout the U.S., um, sort of militias, um, they tend to be almost exactly the opposite of what we think about in terms of authoritarian submission, right? They tend to be anti-federal government, anti-state. So there seems to be something unique about the American experience that is different uh, from these Western European powers um, that might explain that to a certain degree. I don't have a psychological answer for it, but in terms of the history of the ideological uh, America, that seems to be part of it. As, as we go forward in, in these questions, I also am wondering, well, you know, what if we're not crying wolf now? What does that require of us? But I'm going to let Yvette have the next question. Thanks. It's not a question, but it's more of a comment. I think we're we're turning we're getting a little bit too dark now and and negative. And in response to the question about what we can do, I think that we're already doing it. There were half a million people in in Washington and and many more in in many of the cities in the United States uh, the day after Trump got inaugurated. And I doubt that anything like that happened in Nazi uh, Germany. So I think that we are all, you know, it has been like a wake-up call to, the, to a lot of uh, the American people, and what we need to do is just, you know, become more active and participate at the local level as well as national level. So my question is about the continuing changing demographics of the United States. We continue to get much more diverse. How do you see that impacting the, the political um, consequences in the future? I mean, one of the things that political scientists can tell you uh, is that uh, conservatives, Republicans vote. Uh, so to the degree that demographics are changing as we keep hearing, you know, to the benefit of the Democratic Party. Um, really what this comes down to, uh, to a big degree, is turnout. And you keep hearing this, right? That the whole notion of the swing voter um, is pretty weak. Now, we still haven't collected and analyzed all the data from 2016. Uh, we'll see if that's what happened in all these Great Lakes states that flipped uh, from Obama in 2012, um, whether this is some sort of shift among working whites, um, but Republicans are conscientious. So this is one of the, the big five uh, personality dimensions that psychologists look at. This sort of dutifulness, um, being organized, um, wanting to participate in sort of civic uh, functions. And so conservatives tend to be higher on this particular dimension. So they're going to be at a higher level of activation. So um, it's going to take a certain number of people uh, to sort of counter that if that's what you're looking for. Um, 
So it, it will take time, but um, that's, what sh that's what we have going against. As a refugee from the Soviet Union, why is it that Americans are so afraid of socialism? It's as anti-nationalist as they come, anti-Nazi as they come. Why is it that, again, why are they so afraid of it? My opinion from what you just said right there, I'm, I'm 44, so, and there's a lot of people older than me. Growing up, I was always told that socialism and communism was basically the same thing. And that was me growing up all the way. Now, now that I'm older, I found out that socialism is much different than communism. We need a little bit of socialism in our lives. We have public roads, we have libraries, we have... But the right wing cannot fathom that thought. That, that, that's what I got out of it. Part of it, uh, this is only a part of it, but, you know, you, when you look at these different ideological systems, um, you know, with atheism being a particular part of communism and somewhat borrowed to a certain degree by uh, socialism, uh, this has been anathema to most Americans. We remain, uh, in some ways, way a standard deviation beyond the other Western powers in terms of uh, subscribed faith and uh, religiosity, as a psychologist might call it. Um, that's changing, uh, interestingly enough, um, and perhaps captured by n nobody better than Trump uh, in this sort of irreligiousness nature, although we see the spin uh, in terms of how he's presented by party and uh, ideologues. So I think that might be another element is our peculiar history of religion and God in this country. Oh, no, I mean, another thing that I wanted to say, I mean, I'm not an, an American historian. I'm not an Americanist, as we say. You know, it's a horrible expression, but anyway. Um, so, but one thing that I think is important to remember is that socialism spoke the language of class, right? So class consciousness or class identity was the crucial divide in much of Europe for, uh, you know, for generations, right? And uh, in this country, that has never been the case, uh, quite in the same, not never, locally, here and there, but that kind of identification has always been trumped, sorry, by, uh, the, by uh, racial and ethnic divisions, right? I mean, is that, isn't that the horrible epic of part of, you know, American, American history can be spun in so many directions, but that is clearly a main narrative of it, right? So that how whiteness becomes close to, uh, I mean, becomes, can be played on, right? Can be preyed on, in, especially in a democratic system. I mean, so the, the distinction between socialism, I mean, democracy, democracy is a method, right? It can be used for a lot of different purposes. And uh, the fascists were anti-democratic, but they built on the workings of democracy, right? So it's interesting that no... A uh, country that had never experienced democracy never really went fascist autonomously. It was something that the fascists needed. I mean, they needed that to, to uh, do their own thing. And democracy works in complicated ways in terms of class, ethnicity, race, and so on and so forth. A uh, couple of years ago, I was speaking at the Ford School, and I, I mentioned Saul Alinsky, and there was just a sea of blank faces uh, and yet uh, that character from another age really showed us how we can change our own future and how communities can take hold of their own destiny. 
Uh, he was a hero of our recently ex-president, and perhaps we, it's time we rediscovered him. Can you say his name louder so everybody can hear? Saul Alinsky. Given your research, what do you think is something that most people don't understand about the political situation of the United States today? Uh, one thing I didn't get a chance to talk about, but it was in the back of my mind, uh, given the title of tonight's session, uh, was the notion of patriotism and nationalism. Um, to psychologists, these are distinguishable, um, that uh, patriotism is not merely, well, it, it's somewhat less extreme than nationalism, right? So how, do we, how are these defined? Uh, patriotism is a love of country. It's sort of a healthy attachment, if we're going to use sort of attachment styles, uh, as opposed to nationalism, which is how we see our countries being superior to other countries. Um, one thing that's very interesting, and uh, I was going to mention this because it's kind of provocative, um, is that we have a number of studies now where uh, the image of the American flag has been experimentally manipulated, where people see it or they don't see it. And what we see is that when just a very simple image of the flag, like in the corner of a eight and a half by eleven piece of paper, is shown to people, this jumps their nationalism scores, but not their patriotism scores. Furthermore, their social dominance orientation, as you we didn't get a chance to talk about that too much, also goes up. So um, that's what that question was about. Is given that evidence, you know, when we see these displays or we have kids in schools, what is that preparing? Uh, the country for. So, you know, it's food for thought um, to think about what that image actually means to people, even at a somewhat co unconscious level. All right. So what I, what I can say is, uh, again, I'm, not, I'm a pessimist by nature, and uh, it's a good thing. I, I love pessimism. <laughs> and uh, it, is a, it is a healthy, good, uh, wonderful thing. What is not really good is the pessimism that... Um, promises to turn things around miraculously you know those kinds of those kind of kind of kinds of attitudes and i think one thing that i would uh, um really just would like my fellow americans because i became a citizen in 2010 and uh, it was you know a beautiful thing is to actually um realize that we cannot uh, be perfect i don't know what exactly so what i see here uh going on is the the throwing around of these dreams, really, of regeneration, that is the most scary part, right? Of the protection of the social body from all harm, from these, these uh, dreams of, uh, of purification, of, uh, of unity in, in the kinds of ways that I, I mentioned before. And that to some people may be appealing, but they are utterly, not only unachievable, but if you, think, if you stop for a moment and think about what those things mean, utterly scary, right? And utterly to be resisted. And uh, the fact that you can go there in 2016 and actually tap into that so efficiently and so effectively and promise deliverance, right, from, uh, from things that we don't really have, even as the most powerful country in the world, real control over. And we should make... Uh, we should actually come to terms with some of those problems, with some of that complexity, with some of that uncertainty. And, uh, and it's a tough thing to... Um, I'm not a politician, so I can say these things, 
But can you imagine voting for me at a, at a you know, I say this, oh, you have to accept complexity. Vote for me now. <laughs> it ain't going to work, right? And so that's a problem. <laughs> but that's what I would say. <laughs> Thank you very much. You guys have been a great audience this evening. And thanks again to our speakers and our sponsors and our future sponsors of Science Cafes. Please join us uh, next month on the same day, the 22nd. Oh, not the same day. Sa yeah, same weekend. Uh, it'll be the tw February 22nd and then March 22nd, because February has an even number of days. Uh, so, uh, and upcoming topics include paleoclimate, um, epigenetics and human migration. So please join us. <laughs>